as I mentioned before, uh, as I mentioned before the break, probably the most persistent question I get, both when I'm speaking myself to, uh, to student groups or other audiences, but certainly after most of our surveillance conference is, is something along the lines of, well, this is depressing. It looks like we've got no privacy left. Um, is there anything we can do, or do we just sort of throw our hands in the air and learn to love Big Brother? Um, anyway, my answer is often, well, there's a lot of exciting technologies that, uh, that uh, are emerging, as well as various strategies that can help you uh, to preserve your privacy, but that's sort of very technical, and I, I can't deal with that at length. Um, so I thought, well, why not end the day uh, on, on an up note and talk about some of the exciting uh, mechanisms uh, that are either already available or in the pipeline uh, to try and push back a little bit of it, not just against uh, surveillance domestically, but the uh, exploding number of, of either uh, repressive regimes around the world or uh, private bad actors uh, who are seeking to exploit uh, digital communications technology uh, to uh, encroach on our privacy. Uh, and so I've got a, a, a panel we, I'm very excited about that will be led by uh, uh, the uh, director of the uh, uh, Privacy and Technology Project, project the, uh, the Center, at the uh, uh, Center for Democracy. I've absolutely paused that. The, the Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, Michelle Demoy, who studies uh, how uh, novel technologies impact privacy, and is also uh, a scholar of, uh, of some of the ways that uh, we can fight back against that encroachment. So she will introduce the rest of our panel. Thank you. Can everybody hear us? Okay. Up oh, more? Hello? Any better? Okay, all right, we'll try to speak up. Um, hi, everybody, welcome to the last panel of the day. You are the diehards who have stayed, I, I assume, for most of the day, so thank you for that. And I'm pleased to moderate today's discussion, as Julian said, on surveillance, self-defense te technologies, and strategies. So it, it might be a bit wide-ranging, but we're gonna try to cover as many topics as we can from a technical perspective, but also from a user perspective. Um, and our goal today is to kind of survey some of the more promising tools and strategies for counteracting the ever-expanding, as I'm sure you've all spoken about today, surveillance state. Um, we'll get into the nitty-gritty a little bit, and we'll talk about advantages and disadvantages of the different technologies and strategies, and then at the end, we'll take some time to answer your questions. So we're lucky to be joined today by our distinguished panelists. Um, starting to my left, we have Shauna Delavu, who is principal at Security Positive, which seeks to demystify security for non-security experts. She was formerly the co-founder of Community Red, which works to empower vulnerable communities through secure technologies. Um, and practices, sorry. And we also have Steve Bell, who uh, started companies in Europe, the USA, and China, then founded Trilogy VC China, where he spent years backing Chinese seed stage startups, and he's co-founder of Orchid Labs. Also, we have Dove Gordon, who joined George Mason University as an assistant professor in the computer science department in 2015. Before that, he was a research scientist at Applied Communication Sciences, now called Vencore where he did research in cryptography and cybersecurity. Thank you all very much for, for spending your afternoon with us today. Um, so before we begin our general discussion, we have a treat. Uh, Steve has graciously offered to give us a little bit of a closer look at the ORCID protocol. So Steve, take it away. Great, thank you. All right, um, hi everybody. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Steve Bell. I'm the co-founder of Orchid Labs. Um, where this came from is uh, I started caring a lot about censorship and surveillance when I became a victim of government censorship when I moved to China about 10 years ago. 
Uh, for the nine years that I was in China, um, I was constantly dealing with my own challenges of getting to my Gmail or making Google Maps work or things like that. But what in, in my job investing uh, in Chinese startups, I was focused on university students. And so I gave money to 100 different teams from the five top universities in China. And it just blew me away as I spent each day uh, at these universities that the best and the brightest kids in the biggest country in the world were cut off from the internet. They could only get to the Chinese internet, let alone uh, internet sites outside of China. Um, as I began to, to study and learn more about this, um, I came to realize this problem of censorship and surveillance is not just a Chinese problem, it's two-thirds of the world's population is living behind some re regime of government censorship. And the other third of the world's population is living in countries where their ISPs are doing God knows what with their data. They're being surveilled all the time when they're online. So I joined up with a bunch of smart people that I had the pleasure of working with for years, a bunch of technology people, to solve this problem of censorship and surveillance. What we came to realize is that the problem of censorship and surveillance, it's, like I said, it's, it's huge and it's global and it's big. Um, it's a significant portion of the world's population is being censored and everyone's being surveilled. Um, the, the, the reason that this hasn't been fixed, and there's been hundreds of efforts to fix this so far, there's been lots of companies that built VPNs um, and different kinds of technologies to, to get around censorship, to, to get around surveillance. There's been things like Tor that have been built, but all these things have failed. And they've all failed, I believe, for the same reason, is they're all built with some central authority, some central lookup. When I connect to a VPN, I'm connecting to a VPN that's run by some company that has some limited number of servers. And if I'm the Chinese firewall, if I'm anybody trying to surveil, all I need to do is understand who that central authority is and I can block it. So what we came to believe, my team and I, is that the only way to make censorship and surveillance on the internet a thing of the past, the only way to make it so that everyone in the world's got open access to the world's information is to build a service that is 100% decentralized. So when we're building Orchid, everything, we've already open source released all the software. We're going live in about uh, three months in early part of 2018. When we go live, you can shut us down the next day. You can take all of the team and put us 50 feet under the ground. You can't shut down Orchid. So it's built in such a way that there is no central authority. There is no central store of data. There is no central repository of who the nodes are. It's 100% decentralized and it works so that everything on ORCID's anonymous. Um, we think that's the solution. For our users, how it works is they simply download. We have two kinds of users. We have consumers. These are people who want free access to the internet. And we have people who are contributing their bandwidth. So how ORCID works is all of you in America have broadband connections at your home where you have unlimited internet access. How ORCID works is by sharing your internet access at home, by letting somebody, for example, in China connect through you to get to Twitter, you get paid money. So not only by sharing your internet access here in the Western world, not only do you help make internet freedom real in the world, but you get paid for it. The people using our service spend a little bit of these tokens that we've created to get that access. And we're gonna be working after we go live to get rid of the payment part and make it so that this works for people without any tokens, without any 
payment. How, how our technology works is we have people, for example, in China that might want to get to Google, or somebody in Bahrain that wants to write a blog and not get arrested for expressing their point of view, or somebody in America that wants to use the internet and not tell AT&T what disease they have. How, how they do that is they connect through other ORCID users who are providing relay services or exit services to connect to the general internet. The way our routing protocol works is it's always dynamic. So your traffic, for example, a Chinese user's traffic to get to Twitter is always going to be bouncing around through different users in a way that can never be discovered, in a way that no authority can look up what those routes are, and in a way that the people providing routing services don't know what the traffic that they're routing is, so that it stays anonymous. So that's a, a short overview, but the idea is that we want to bring internet freedom to everybody in the world, and we're building a, a service that enables that, um, that is 100% decentralized, and that once we go live does not depend on us for its uh, continuation and its growth. So that's the ORCID protocol. Great, thank you. Thanks very much. I'm sure we'll have questions. I know I have a couple. Um, <laughs> But uh, to, to kind of get into our discussion and get things rolling, um, first we want to talk a little bit about the trends that we're seeing in counter-surveillance. So um, we, I was talking over email with some of the panelists about the big uptick in private computation methods this year. Um, differential privacy is sort of everywhere, and of course blockchain is everywhere too. I feel like every time I have a conversation with a policymaker, they say, but what about blockchain? And you know, it's, it's not a panacea to, to all of the world's problems. Um, but we've seen differential privacy in the Chrome browser and Uber's historical ride data. Also, multi-party computation has shown up in everything from Google's store sales, um, which gives, if, if you don't know what that does, it gives advertisers an idea of what percentage of people see their, their ads and then, and then buy a product. But it doesn't impact privacy when doing that, the, the user's privacy. As well as in policy, Wyden, uh, Senator Wyden has introduced a longitudinal higher education education bill that uses multi-party computation. So it's sort of all, all around us these days. And so you know, what, what are you guys seeing that has interested you in the last year or so that you think would be worth kind of telling people about something that sort of piqued your curiosity or something that has been talked about a lot, like differential privacy, that you think is not necessarily worthwhile? Do you want to start us off, Steve? Uh, I'll let, please. OK. Yeah. Please. Um, well, so uh, secure computation, which you mentioned, is now seeing some daylight in some major companies and, and has been mentioned now in this bill on education. Uh, so that was first invented in 78. And when I started graduate school in 2004, I remember people asking, you know, we think this will ever be practical. Uh, and the first implementation was in 2006. And in the last 10 years, we've seen it go from like, you know, you can do standard computations, very, very simple things that would take you a few milliseconds on a standard computer. We can do that in, in 10 hours. So it's, it's really practical now. Um, in the last 10 years, we've gone from that to almost no overhead. So I mean, there has been, I don't know, six or seven magnet, orders of magnitude improvement. And well, maybe that's exaggerating, but certainly four orders of magnitude improvement in the, uh, huh. in the runtime of these things. And we're now at a point where really the, the concern isn't even the computational costs anymore. We're talking about whether we can, the bandwidth can support these computations. So cryptographers have gone in the last 10 years from saying, you know, do you think this theory we've been doing for the last 30 years will ever see the light of day to saying, like, what's going on? Why isn't the rest of the world adopting it yet? 
Mm -hmm. um, and now, finally, we're seeing, I'd say it's been five years of asking that question, you know, what are the barriers? They're not, they're not on our court anymore. This is now a social barrier or a bureaucratic barrier. I've seen lots and lots of government agencies say, wow, this is fantastic. Who's going to build it for us? And I say, well, it's not me, so you know, you figure it out. <laughs> yeah, um, so we've been wondering when it would be adopted, and it's very exciting now to see so quickly in the last two years multiple mentions, including now this, this bill that's been introduced uh, mm -hmm. uh, to the Senate. So um, I'm happy to talk about the technical aspects of it, but I think, uh, you know, I think we're at a point now where we may actually be seeing that these, these technologies are ready to be introduced. It's very exciting that, that Google Chrome is using differential privacy. It really um, is, yeah. It's, and, and I know you well, and, and that's how, I mean, we could not have built ORCID three years ago. Uh, there were a number of things that weren't created until the last couple of years that enable us to do this, plus the ability of standard hardware to do the encryption uh, computation um, has enabled us to make the ORCID work in a way that's anonymous end-to-end. With each per, each node on the way doing some uh, decryption encryption, because that's so fast today, right? Mm. Um, and certainly the other thing we're taking advantage of is blockchain technology that enables um, me to pay you for forwarding two packets of mine, and I owe you two one millionths of a penny. How could I do that efficiently and effectively? Before there was no way, and we had to create a new way to do. Uh, these multi-party payments, and we couldn't have done it without the technology that exists today. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll briefly just talk about some of the financial tools. Um, so Orchid has a payment system. Is that right? Yes. Uh, users, users use a token that we've created in Ethereum. I'm, I'm not sure if you know what Ethereum is, but it's another blockchain similar to Bitcoin, but instead of supporting a currency, it supports smart contracts. So you can do any, any kind of programmatic uh, contract in this Ethereum blockchain. So we're taking advantage of that Ethereum blockchain. We've created a new, a new token that represents gigabytes of traffic on our, on our network. So people spend a little bit of our token to get gigabytes of access, and other people earn those tokens. And then people, when you earn those tokens, you can take those tokens and trade them into other crypto or into fiat through different exchanges. Oh, so all these things have just getting built up today mm -hmm. that enable us to build an anonymous way for people to have open access to the internet. Okay. Well, so and, and the tokens are part of the payment. <coughs> One of the things, in, in order for it to be anonymous, I can't ask somebody to give me your name and your Visa card. Yeah. Right. right. Plus, I couldn't pay the $2 transaction fee when I am trying to take care of two one millionths of a penny. Right. Um, so, so the way our payments work also helps with the an anonymity of our system. Interesting. I think that's an important point because there are so many times when technologies are designed to be maybe anonymous or secure, but not necessarily private, right? And so in one of those areas, I see the difference between something like Zcash and Monero. Um, we talked a little bit about that. You know, Zcash is sort of, um, you know, zero knowledge proof. It's a very mathematically sound approach mm -hmm. to transactions, but it's not necessarily private. Right, it doesn't necessarily the the components of it are not necessarily private. Where you have a, a a technology like Monero built on sort of older layering technologies that in fact is ha, covers those privacy bases. Would you agree with that? I know you've you've done a little bit about Monero. Well, actually, you disagree, right? Yeah. You think uh, Monero is, is more um, is less privacy protective than Zcash? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So from a cryptographer's standpoint, we've tried very hard to formally define these things and then rigorously prove that our systems meet our definitions. So Zcash has done that, and zero-knowledge proofs, again, also developed in the, well, in the mid-'80s. Um, this is an 
old theory that's now finally become practical, mm -hmm. uh, but it's allowed the, author, you know, the creators of Zcash to formally prove that they're achieving what they claim to achieve, to achieve. whereas Monero was sort of an ad hoc construction that researchers were able to show does not provide what you'd like it to provide, and you can de-anonymize things. Okay. So yeah, one of the things I've been working on this year is trying to make Monero actually private by improving some of the, uh, okay. uh, the, uh, you know, the formalisms that, that we're lacking. That'll be interesting to see. And so for people who have no idea what we just talked about, what, what Myself among I, them, I'm like, oh, this is so, so Shauna's work is, is really important, I think. It, it's, it's about translating sort of yeah. technical, super technical stuff into in ways that real people can understand. And you know, this, these are not easy um, theories. These are not easy subjects or even easy to use. What, what do you see as sort of the biggest challenge to for somebody who is looking for you know, private transactions or a private internet experience, what do you see as the biggest challenges in the technology space right now? Uh, communications, <clears throat> frankly, like putting it into a language that's readable and understandable, and then something that uh, is applicable. So it's not so much, we talk about localization, and often people mistake that for translation into foreign language. And what localization really is, is making it applicable to someone in their set of circumstances. In security, and I'm going to talk about security in lieu of privacy because in a lot of places in the world, they are not, they cannot be separated. And privacy, frankly, is a privilege for those of us who live in a country with rule of law still. So in security, there's a term called threat modeling that folks in this room are probably very familiar with. I'm, the, I'm of the firm belief that threat modeling is an exercise in empathy. It's you putting yourself into someone else's shoes to give them an idea of where their vulnerabilities lie, where their potential pitfalls are, right? Like what's, what's, what, where their play, potential places are for attack. If you can't offer your tools to folks to tell them how you're meeting their specific needs, deaf ears. Who's going to, I mean, we all like to fancy ourselves like a Steve Jobs who can just destroy like the thing that he's made that everyone loves when he like, what, he shut down like some version of the iPod was just like, we're not making this anymore, right? This like super high selling bestseller, whatever. We, I think we'd like to believe that we can do that in internet freedom because the need to us seems so great. But unless you can make the case, and that's like a marketing and communications question, folks aren't going to get it. And something like a tool that we've built here in the States and in the West that seems to work for us from the outside perspective, but has no, so no idea not only of like a, I'll, I'll, I won't go into all of that just yet. I'll just say, one tool does not fit all. Like, I think Facebook runs into this issue over and over, right? Like, it's a tool that can be used to actually kill people in parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Like, in Pakistan, women using Facebook can get them killed. So it's not with hyper, it's no hyperbole in that statement, right? But the tool was built essentially for a Western audience. And it's for folks like us. It's now just so happened to scale to 2 billion plus people. It doesn't work everywhere. And so if we continue down that path of creating one tool and expect that to work across all sorts of groups of people, we'll, we'll, without, again, without hyperbole, we'll get people killed. We'll endanger people. Technology in the human rights space is not technology. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a completely different context. Hmm. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so I'm curious as to how you respond to that because you're sort of releasing something into this, yeah. to this yeah. wild. Yeah, too, Steve. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well we, we have a a huge challenge because we're not building ORCID for a few people. We want all internet traffic to be surveillance free. We, we don't think anybody's internet traffic should be subject to a government block or to a corporate surveillance, unless you opt into that. 
So how do we get ORCID out for everybody? Yeah. When I just showed you, ORCID requires you to know about cryptocurrencies and Ethereum and holy mackerel. Right. That makes the audience very small. So, so what we're doing is you might have heard of other companies doing these initial token offerings and these uh, public token sales. We're not doing that. <laughs> what we're going to do is a giveaway where we're going to put millions of our tokens inside our client and we're going to give it away to people. There's, there's a... There's 100,000 Chinese kids at U.S. universities with a gigabit of internet in their dorm rooms that are happy to share that with their 20 friends in China that can't get to Wikipedia. So we're just going to embed our crypto in the client so that nobody has to think about it. But that's still too much. So what we need to be doing in, in after 2018 is how do we get it so that people can use this and not know they're using it? How do we partner with other people that are already providing things so that Chrome just runs on ORCID, so that Firefox just runs on ORCID, so that YouTube's embedded ORCID, so that anybody that wants to use YouTube in China can now use it and doesn't have to think about it. So how do you do that? Right, we're working on a number of ways to do that, but the, the cool thing that we can do is because we have this cryptocurrency, we can just put it in there. Mm. So we can just embed it in the software. Doesn't that create a vulnerability, though, of sorts? How? Well, I mean, if you have a point of... In, Insertion. Yeah. Then you have a, a, a in theory. Point of we, we, the Orchid company, we can't do it. But we can. YouTube, you can take our open source code and you can put it in your YouTube mobile app. And Google, you can buy our tokens and you can put them in that YouTube app, and then people can download YouTube from you. Oh, right? interesting. Yeah. Have you guys done focus groups and things like that? We, we're we're doing that right now. So okay. we, I actually have a team of. Uh, we have a, a Orchid team right now that's running around to uh, universities in China trying to figure out how we're going to sign up every Chinese kid at every university to be able to use their dorm internet access to get through that Chinese firewall. Okay, very interesting. I think, um, yeah, it will be interesting to hear about your focus groups and, and sort of how users... But I'm right, I'm right with what you yeah, said, is that we same. have to make this accessible to everybody. Listen. And, and Building yeah. localization is not translation. It is not. Yeah. And I think the big thing that we miss, so my background in the internet freedom community is with like folks like Tor. Um, and, and so it's with these sort of, man, it's it, like these grant-funded tools that run on the same boom and bust cycles that any government budget, like anything funded by a U.S. government budget will. So they're not a particularly reliable source, set of tools, let's just say. But one of the things that they miss all the time is user participation. Y'all, I went to this, the first meeting I went to, this Circumvention Tech Summit in Berlin in 2013, this guy's telling me about this great tool, it's just this plugin for blah, 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 and it's going to help journalists in whatever country. And I was like, oh, how did the journalists in that country like your tool? He's like, do you know any? <laughs> That's probably, probably not your best approach. Right. So your build is going to be imbued with your values. And essentially, the values, of, like your values need to align with the values of your target audience. If you don't know what those are, you're not going to ever, adoption is so much easier if you have participation from the jump. If well, you're how do you base that, users. though? If you think, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. it, it makes me think about privacy, which is so sure. contextual and difficult to, to create policy around for that reason and practices. So how do you determine what your target audience wants? <laughs> is it policy? Is it... Um, cultural, how do, you, how do you make that decision? And is it even clear that they know? So, yeah, I think that's a, that, okay, so, from building a big tool that's going to scale that you can get VC funding for is a different story, right? If I'm looking at a project that I'm building, again, say for women in Pakistan or for a group of civil society, um, like alternative political party folks in Belarus, so these are folks that I've worked with in the past, 
yeah, you generally have to find an intermediary, a partner on the ground. You have to build trust, and that takes a long time. Yeah. And because it otherwise becomes a security issue. So not just your privacy, you're dealing with security, right? Mm -hmm. Do they know who they are? Yeah. Particularly in authoritarian contexts, they absolutely do. Like Chinese school kids, like university kids, that's a huge audience. You will find folks who self-select inside of that because they don't want, they're not comfortable with just like what Baidu serves up to them. They're going to want to know more um, because they want to be more competitive, right? Um, I think that's the other piece to this. You become paternalistic when you tell people what group they belong to. I think folks have to self-identify. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then you have to create a secure method for connection, either in person, on paper, or digitally, mm -hmm. um, from beginning to end, and allow people to opt in. Because if they're not choosing you, then they then it becomes like a paternalistic situation. There's no empowerment, there's no choice, there's no freedom of expression from the beginning. Hmm. And so it doesn't matter if your freedom of expression tool is helpful to them, if they're not being represented to be free to choose from the beginning, that's just not. So speaking work. of paternalism, <laughs> uh, we, were, we had a very interesting discussion. I'd love to, for, to talk about it a little bit. Um, you're writing a book about, called it Security is Female, correct? Yeah. And, and sort of tell us a little bit about that. And, and we'll get into some of the tools and other things after this. But um, tell us a little bit about that. I'm also happy to take a break at any point in time. Um, the idea of the book, is, and the idea generally, is that women, and you could same could be said, I'd say, of any group that is not the privileged class in a society. Mm -hmm. um, we are socialized. In our case, as women, we're genderized to uh, think more about security. The way that we're socialized, the way that we're genderized, the way that it, it, it creates changes in our brains, in our neurology, and in our bodies that make us more capable of operating in security jobs. And that can be in corporate risk. It can be in law enforcement. It can be, I mean, it runs the gamut, like uh, stabilization and like nation rebuilding, right? So in negotiations and in national security, for crying out loud, um, women make way better operatives. You know, if you're talking about intelligence, which is my background, like way better. Like the Alex station that like and tracked down Osama bin Laden was almost entirely women. And so, what the crux of this is that, yeah, it's not how we're born. It's not in our DNA. It's how we've been socialized. It's the less privileged, less powerful class or group of people to think about security in probably almost every interaction in our daily lives. And so after decades of that, you've built up a level of security acumen that you can bring to a job that, wow, if I was a company hiring somebody, I would want that person because I don't have to train them in empathy. I don't have to train them in networking, in social skills. Like, I don't have to train them to think clearly in situations of high stress. Our brains, women's brains, are just lit up in high stress moments. When the cortisol is pumping through our bodies, contrary to popular belief, we don't become emotional. We become far more analytical. And in those same situations, men tend to take higher risks, as an example. So that's what the book discusses. That's so interesting to me, and I can't wait to hear your questions about that, because I feel like there might be some, some people who agree and disagree with that. So, so all of these things in mind, there are, there are all these interesting technologies and, and um, sort of sociological components to technology that, that we're trying to, to think about. What is out there for regular people that, that you think, for example, or you think that can meet some of these needs, sort of usability, but also secure, and also private, and also responsive? To, to differences. 
Anything that you've come across, Dove? Um, well, I've started using Signal recently. And Signal's that's one of good. the great success stories. True, yeah. uh, true. In the last couple of years. Does anyone use Signal? Absolutely. In the yeah. audience? Um, great. And actually, so this kind of gets back to this question of, you know, is it necessary to piggyback off of a larger uh, company or, or government regulation, or do people know that they want these technologies? And I think it's right. still not entirely clear. I mean, I used to assume that we wouldn't see a lot of these technologies becoming ubiquitous until there was some government insistence on it, uh, because it even seemed that, that companies didn't care about security. Nobody wants to spend money on security until after right. it's too late. Breach. But that's not true anymore. We've had so many breaches that have been so high profile. As the stakes have gotten larger, we now see that Google by itself wanted to stop collecting our browser history, uh, at least in this one case of the Chrome statistics. And I mean, that's their industry, right? They want our browsing history. So I don't understand exactly what's happening within Google that you know, in one place they're collecting it and in another place they're not. But part of Google has decided we don't need to know where you've been. We just want to know who has been you know, messing with your web browser. And so what they do is they collect noisy responses. You don't even know it. I didn't know it until I heard a talk about it. Okay. You, uh, I think you opt in by default, although I'm not sure about that. But right. instead of sending your browsing history, you, for every bit in the description of that history, you flip a random coin that's biased towards uh, zero, and uh, you mask that bit of your browsing history with that value. Mm -hmm. And what you end up sending to Google is complete garbage. They get nothing out of your response. They can't possibly learn anything about where you've been. But in the aggregate with all the other users, they can find the signal and the noise to figure out who's been uh, installing malware or or changing your browser settings. Mm -hmm. And Google just did this without telling us nobody knows or cares, nobody's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing now at least corporations are pushing us towards security, which I think is very interesting, right? Um, uh, clearly there are use cases where people know that they need it and, and you know what you're doing with Orchid Lab sounds very exciting yes. for those use cases. But it's interesting to me that even without, and now Signal is, is even a step beyond that, where we are seeing that people are embracing these technologies. I think. Yeah. Ironically, not because the government has introduced regulation, but because they've been caught, you know, with, with uh, surveilling us. Um, well, speaking so. <laughs> of the government not introducing, and then I'd like to hear what, what you guys think also. Um, a little, can you tell us a little bit about the Wyden bill and why that is so important? Yes, yeah, so, uh, Senator Wyden's office just introduced a bill. They've been working for many years trying to come up with a bill that would uh, um, uh, use data that's already mostly held by different government agencies, although not entirely, um, to build a database that would allow uh, students to find out, or pr prospective students to find out where their best dollar uh, could be spent on their education. So uh, enabling them to ask questions like, if I'm going to study psychology, will I make more money coming from this university or that university? Uh, and the data would pull from IRS data, um, from uh, federal loan data, uh, GI Bill data. So all this, a lot of this data already exists, although for students that don't already have loans or, or you know, some people will be now brought into this data set that weren't there before, but the data is, in, is largely already there. Uh, but there was a lot of pushback anyway, for obvious reason. And so it was sort of a dead end because they had this conflict between data privacy and data utility. Mm -hmm. um, people want both sides of the aisle would like to give students this purchasing power, you know, the ability to make good decisions, mm -hmm. um, but uh, also are sensitive to the, the fact that we don't want to be collecting this data. And secure computation, which I mentioned before, is exactly the tool that allows you to do this sort of thing. So if the IRS has a data set that they don't want to open to uh, the Department of Education, 
well, we know how to compute on data that sits in two different places without ever exposing the data from one place to the other mm -hmm. and just giving the answer to a particular query or question. That's exactly what this technology is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And what's really exciting is that Wyden's office figured this out. You know, we've been talking about it for 30 years, but uh, now we're ready and waiting for someone <laughs> to adopt it. And they have put in the bill that, it, we, that you know, the, the establishment of this data set would have to use differential privacy and secure computation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's exciting because it, you know, it might actually mean that we can have our cake and eat it too. That utility and privacy, we'd like to think of them as being completely at odds, but they're not always at odds. And, and you know, there's more and more compelling reasons to release our data, right? I mean, we opt in all the time and most people don't think about it. Um, we shouldn't have to give up that utility. I'm never gonna turn off Google Maps. I mean, Google will always know where I am because it's just not worth it to me to pay the price for privacy there. But there's no reason Google has to know where I am to tell me what coffee shops are around. I can ask Google that question without revealing where I am, and that's what secure computation would allow us to do. That's a perfect example, thank you very much. Uh, did you have a comment on that also? Well, I, um, I think that's a great example, and I, um, um, that, that gives me uh, some hope where our <laughs> government's actually using uh, the current thinking about technology and applying that to be able to offer something that's useful to society. Right. Um, one, one of the things that, 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 uh, that concerns me a little bit about is how other parts of our government sometimes make rules or uh, implement rules that maybe aren't with society, uh, with all of Americans in mind. Uh -huh. Net neutrality is a good example of that, which is uh, a hot topic right now. Uh -huh. um, and uh -huh. I'm a little bit, um, I'm, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that our government's going to make the right decisions on things like net neutrality because they have so many different competing voices yeah. that aren't the voice of America. They're the voice of corporate interests or big money interests. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I am excited about is how technology can sometimes make it irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So, for example, what we're building at ORCID, I, it doesn't matter what AT&T tries to do in terms of throttling your traffic. If they can't see your traffic, they can't throttle it. If they don't know it's Hulu or Netflix, they can't provide preference for one over the other. Hmm. So, so I'm excited about what's going on inside the open source development community specifically around putting in place technologies that make the internet better and don't rely on the government to regulate it to be better. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think about products like the Librem laptop and things that are running on Linux? And do you think that those are something that will catch fire, will be? Well, I think that's one of the great things that's been going on in technology for the last two decades is the fact that um, as this technology stack gets built out, both from a hardware and software standpoint, the cost of it is dropping, 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 and its accessibility is going up and up and up. And I think that's a great thing for the world because you know, as more and more people have access to information, there's more enlightenment, there's less ignorance, and I think that's a good thing for the world. Hey, some people would push back on, on that, in fact. Um, there, there are some... Like Xi Jinping. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> or Putin. I yeah. didn't... Or Trump. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> Excuse me. correct. Yeah. But what I was talking about more was um, the idea that uh, I actually was reading about a Facebook engineer who said that the, the platform had ripped apart and destroyed parts of society because they had rigged this addictive system um, to trigger dopamine and, and it sort of shortened our attention spans and had created this... this yeah, and destroyed social bonds. So that's more... Yeah, what yes, from. yes. <laughs> I, I, certainly, <laughs> certainly there's some challenges with how our society is um, yeah. taking up all of these new capabilities. Yes. And I is think... Is there anybody you wouldn't allow to, to join the ORCID 
protocol? Like, well, we've built ORCID so that we can't do that, okay. right? That, it's, that we can't control access, we can't see access, we don't know who's using it, we don't know who's got it, we don't know what the traffic is. Okay. Now, personally, I, I and my co-founders are building ORCID for good people to have access to information. We're not building ORCID for Al-Qaeda or for drug dealers or for kid porn people. Mm -hmm. And we're not building ORCID to even support, for example, the dark web. But it's open source. Out? We know that those things are going to get built. There's nothing that we can do to prevent that. But what we can do is build something that we think brings way more good to the world than the evil that it can uh, facilitate. How do you monetize that? Uh, so we have no business model, we have no revenue model because we can't see the traffic, we can't tax it. So that's, what, that's one of the really cool things that's going on in technology right now is things like Ethereum enable companies like Orchid to be able to raise money without selling any equity. So we raised money from Sequoia and DFJ and top VCs. We sold no equity. We sold them these future tokens. So in the future, as our internet, as internet traffic on Orchid goes up, 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 and there's billion users, the, the price for each one of those individual Orchid tokens will go up. People will pay less and less for access, yeah. but the price of an individual token, because there's a fixed amount, will go up, and that's how investors make money. Mm -hmm. And that's how, as a founder, I'm holding tokens. Huh. So if, if we don't get to 100 million users, I won't make any money. But if we get to a lot of users, we'll make money. Interesting. Yeah. But the, and, and the, just a, note, a side note on that, I was commenting with some other people in my space about why is it that development in this space is going on 10x faster than the buildup of the internet. So that buildup of the internet in the late 90s mm -hmm. went at this speed. But what people in my industry see now is what's happening in Ethereum and Bitcoin and crypto is development is maybe 10x faster. Why? Well, because these tokens enable developers to be directly incentivized. So I build a great piece of software, a bunch of people use it, all of a sudden, I'm rich. You know, and we, we have many examples of that in the crypto space now. Yeah. Mm. I think that's the downside of open source. Up till now, it's been voluntary for the most part. And now part. it's incentivized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which makes open source tools. So open source tools are wonderful, right? Because you can inspect the code and yeah. you can determine for yourself that it's secure and anyone can audit it and fantastic. Yeah. There aren't any holes, aren't any leaks. You know you're secure using the tool. But the problem is that no one got paid for it. Yeah. Right. And so that stuff would come now down all the time. Like it would just yeah. stop working or the developer would pull it offline or they'd be waiting for their grant to come in. And so like just couldn't get the work done. Mm -hmm. No one was getting paid to do it. Yeah. Are there any tools that, that you think, you know, because open source, I think some the public knows about. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily very um, usable, per se. I mean, you have oh. to be able to read the code and, and figure out where the holes are. So are there tools that you think people can use? Oh, you know, I use some because I'm committed to it as an idea. Uh, but I wouldn't say, like, for business continuity, I would not put my team on LibreOffice. I wouldn't ask everyone to be on Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a fantastic tool, but, like, I can't always get it to work. And I have high-tech people on my team, and so they can help me. But, like, not everyone can operate in a Linux environment. Yeah. But yeah, everybody do does operate in an open-source environment. Every minute of the day when you go to any website, because the website you're going to is running on a stack of open-source tools. Right? True, true. Sure. We're not I mean, using it as a any user. software. I mean, if you look at Mac OS, it was open source too. Yeah. It was built off Ubuntu, and then a little layer of proprietary code got put on top, and that was the end. I mean, mm -hmm. we could make that argument about a lot of its stuff, but stuff that's like tools that are committed to being open source are not. It's not. They're they're not. 
entirely reliable. So I'll be excited to see how you do this. Facing all the time. Right. Yeah. What kind of tool do you all think um, sort of bills itself as being secure and private when in actuality is not? So something that activists Tor. or others use, Tor? Can you yeah. explain? I mean, Tor understands that it has had, so Tor has come a long way. Um, and I'm, I'm glad for them as a team. They've had all sorts of team issues. So their leadership has ha struggled. And then internally, they've had, you know, they've had some difficult folks. Um, so I can't talk about Tor and not mention that. Um, Tor is a, is a difficult tool to use. They've done a lot to make it usable, but it, it sucks bandwidth. So in places in the world like Turkmenistan, where I've worked, you, there's no possible way. For a long time, it was very clear who, if, you, if a, an authoritarian regime, an ISP, someone who could and was interested wanted to watch internet traffic, it was very easy to see Tor traffic. It looked different. I can't tell you how it looked, but it, you guys know this better than I do. Maybe I'll do too. So until they obfuscated that traffic over the last few years, that was, that was putting people in danger to use Tor. I could never recommend it because it caused danger to people and because I also had a, a really difficult issue with a place that tolerated a sexual predator. It also had issues with entry and exit nodes and those things being easy to detect which could cause problems if you were the person operating the entry or exit node in a country where maybe that wasn't a good idea for you and you didn't necessarily know. Mm -hmm. So it was very easy to find users. And I'm all for like encrypting end-to-end -end and securing the content, but I'm far more for and in favor of securing the human using the tool. And sometimes those things get separated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Do you, are there any tools like Tor that you think? I'll punt for now. Okay. Um, I, I know that there's, there's a number of new chat apps that have come out recently uh, of the Signal ilk mm -hmm. that purport to have Signal capabilities, but don't. Um, I, and the name of the one, uh, which is very popular right now, is WhatsApp. In, no, WhatsApp has some other Viber. challenges. Huh? Viber. Well, the, these tools? There's one that has a T called uh, Tele Telegram. 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 Thank you, Zach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but where people think they are, but they're not. No, right? it's that, that encryption is not encryption that's commonly used. Yeah. I mean, it was built by. The, the other thing that I think people use that they think is secure regularly that's not is any VPN. And, yes. and most, you know, yes. it's very hard to know what kind of encryption your VPN are using. Many VPNs are using shitty old encryption that's easily decrypted. The other thing is, you know, people think by using a VPN, my browsing history is private. Yeah. No, it's not. It's all on their server. <laughs> Why do you trust them more than you trusted AT&T? Just because they're a tiny company in Uzbekistan, or why are you trusting them? Or okay. even here, right? We, uh, CDT um, filed a complaint, I was saying earlier, um, against Anchor Free Hotspot Shield. I hope none of you is using that. Um, although, who knows, maybe they've, they've improved it. But we filed an FTC complaint against them, mostly because they were making promises that they couldn't uphold. Yep. Um, there was, there's data leakage, um, which we didn't get into too much in our complaint, but just they were saying things like, privacy, your privacy is guaranteed. And so I guess user beware is sort of, maybe that's an, a natural inclination for somebody who cares about their privacy and security. But nonetheless, some of the tools out there are not as they appear. Yep. And it, my friend in China just told me a story about, you know, there's these apps that say they're a VPN in China, and it's the Chinese government, right? Wow. So you download it, and you're in trouble. How, do right? you, how can you find that out? 
he's in the space. So I feel like in China, place. it was always word of mouth, like which was reliable, which wasn't. <laughs> and then when it got shut down, you knew that it had been either incorporated or, or they, it had been found out. Huh. Yeah. If it worked, you had to cut, and if it worked well, you kind of had to raise an eyebrow. What have, what have you found people using? It sounds like you, you've you know, been all over the world and worked with different populations. What have you found people really resonate? Uh, what tool or software device? So funny, because like the better it works, the less trusting people are of it. <laughs> so like a signal was like, this is too easy. And I was like, okay, well, we can do a PGP training, but like, do you really have to subject yourself to that if you have Perio or other ways to transfer documents. Um, Someone with low bandwidth though. What, yeah, what? so typically we would try to find the lowest barrier to entry and understand like, okay, so and explain like here, this is Virtue, this is a private company, it's in the United States, this mm -hmm. is a privacy tool, not a security tool, but we can start here and sort of uh, work people up to a place where they might be interested in PGP. But um, a lot of folks don't trust American companies. Yeah. Like with I, fairly good reason, I would, I would sure. say. Not necessarily because of ill intention always, but because Because we're they, all run by CIA. Well, yeah, like, and their data is, you know, sure. easily subpoenable. But if they're operating inside of their own authoritarian context, say if you're in the former Soviet Union or in China, you know that the FSB or the Chinese authorities are, like, paying attention. It's not that way in the United States, I, to the same extent, mm -hmm. that our intelligence organizations are listening. We don't have a SORM. We did have... We, Okay, that's not a fair example. Sorm and Prism are a little too close. But the surveillance <laughs> that we have in this, we have rule of law. Mm -hmm. There should be separation. We have a representative, like a representation. Like we have a, a representative body that can help uh, us as citizens, right? So it's, so I think they're thinking about it in a lot of cases in their, in their own cultural framework where they're like, oh, well, clearly the CIA is behind this. Mm -hmm. And so many of the tools and Open Whisper Systems gets money from the U.S. government as well that builds... Um, signals. So many of the tools are funded by USG money, and so that becomes an issue for folks as well. And let's not forget that RSA was taking $10 million to backdoor their pseudorandom number generators. <laughs> right, right. No, that's a very good point. Well, and then these, 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 the tools that are available today, for example, in China, um, are easily just blocked by, because they come from a central source again. Right? Yeah. And as long as it comes from a central source, the Chinese authorities can block those central sources of whatever that tool it's is. It's cat and mouse in China. They trained up, you know, they well, trained... But, but I think a decentralized oh, gosh, approach yes. maybe changes those rules and changes that dynamic. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was amazing living there because it was always homegrown. I had to learn a lot of Chinese to use those tools, like homegrown tools, um, to get around censorship. It sounds like there's a lot of, of sort of good and bad out there. In your perfect world, what, what would be available to, to the everyday person? Sort of what's missing from the counter-surveillance toolbox, in your opinion? Well, or, Orchid? I mean, Orchid I, I, well, besides Orchid, I mean, I, I, think, I, th I think that it should be normal for people using uh, modern communications, where it used to be, you know, I went and I went to my neighbor's house and I had a conversation with him mouth to mouth and I could trust that that was private. Mm -hmm. I should have that same level of trust today, whether I'm on my cell phone, sending an SMS or sending an email, that my communications are secure and Standing private. Standing in someone's house and that has an Alexa, for crying out loud. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, those are different things because one I'm opting into, I bought that Alexa and I said, hey, it's okay for everything I say in my house to be Amazon's property, right? 
or Google's property I mean, or whatever. That's, that's what you know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily obvious for everybody who buys that. Yeah. That, yeah, and that's a separate problem. I think that our, that our, that the providers like Facebook and Google and Amazon, et cetera, should be doing a much better job explaining to people what's going on with their data. I wonder why they're not. <laughs> it's that, you know, the opacity of the system would probably be my, on my wish list yeah. that that was changed. At least, you know, it's, transparency is, of course, not at all the solution, but it's a part of, of, of moving towards a solution. And I think the, the lack of that by companies is definitely a, a huge, huge challenge in this space. What would, what would yours be? What do you think is missing from the counter-surveillance toolbox? And maybe it's something that allows data utility as well as security. I mean, I'm still very interested in what gets people to adopt these things. Because yeah. even if we have those tools, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like if everyone's sending postcards, and right, that famous example, if everyone's sending right. postcards and I'm sending the sealed envelope, and it doesn't matter that, you know, it's encrypted, right? That's I'm a good point. That's a good myself. point. Yeah. So it's interesting that Signal is being adopted, although I've noticed a lot of friends start using it and then drop off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think more than the tools from my perspective have been there for a long time. There's usability issues for sure, and mm -hmm. it's exciting that we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing progress on that front. Yeah. But even then, if people don't adopt it, it's useless. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how you motivate that. And it, it is interesting that these corporations, in some, in some cases, they're seeing the need to do that. In some cases, for example, I think a, a large part of why Signal isn't used is that Apple's not interested in letting it take over as the messaging app on the iPhone. So you have to decide to keep it as a separate app in the background just for your signal communication. Nobody wants to do that. You want one messaging My message app. has right. encryption, so it's all taken It does. Of. <laughs> well, it's, it's uh, yeah. Tell but us about iMessage. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Apple's encryption, right? And it's not, it's closed source. So there's no way of knowing, and, and there's no way of knowing that it's actually encrypted and that they can't, I mean, they have the keys. They can decrypt it and look at your information. And they may say that they wouldn't do it if compelled legally, but they may. You know, like you're trusting a private company to, to protect you um, when they have no motivation to protect you. Right. Although it is interesting that we are, again, seeing these conflicts. I mean, right. Apple does seem to feel now that they have some motivation to protect you. I mean, I, saw that yeah, iOS is encrypted. Your phone is encrypted, an Apple phone, by default. Right but now, like, yes, agree. We've come far, I would have to say. I mean, just for that reason alone, yes. right, that there's that option available. So I want to um, take some time and open it up to you all. Um, last panel of the day, so let it rip. You know, ask the questions that you've let been holding rip. inside all day long, or maybe your whole life. Um, yes. <laughs> maybe not those. Yeah, please, we have 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thank Stephen you, because I wasn't Key. sure what time it was. Uh, I'm a uh, former U.S. government official. But since I'm former, I can speak at least partially at liberty. And uh, in some of my assignments, I dealt with intelligence issues. So I have at least an idea of what the capabilities were at a certain moment in time, although I can't discuss those directly. Uh, but some of the things you all said and some of the things also that um, or speaker at lunch said, when we're talking about ORCID, when we're talking about Signal, Proton, so on, um, and all the various other ways of trying to deal with security. Concerns I have, first, are you opening yourself up to get a virus from someone who's quote unquote a good guy but is really not, or someone exploiting the good guy? Right. Uh, are you going to be slowing down your network by adding in this additional layer? Uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, if you're using ORCID and you're allowing other people to have access mm -hmm. to your computer, uh, is that going to allow them to be possibly doing things that you wouldn't like? Mm -hmm. um, phishing scams. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest problem is not necessarily the Russians going and directly tapping into something through some nefarious way. It's that they send out an email, click on this to see this picture. And when the person does it, it immediately starts spreading something and all sorts of things happen. So what can we do other than educating people to prevent right. that? And I guess the last thing that I'll throw out, okay, I can go and I can encrypt things to the nth degree. I can do all sorts of stuff to try and protect myself. But when I'm sending an email to somebody who's not using all this stuff, how can we go and set up some system where I'm protected and they're protected? Mm -hmm. and, and to what extent do we have anything today that'll do that? I realize I've thrown a lot of things at you. Hopefully these are things that are of interest to the other people also. All good questions. Anybody want to start? Shauna? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, what can we do? So you're right about that, right? There was this famous case where Firefox had to send a cease and desist to uh, Gamma, I think is the name of the company that produces Finn Fisher and FinSpy, this like mass surveillance technology that governments can buy and then implement and to target people in their countries. So it, um, I think they had set it up so that you thought you were downloading an update for Firefox and you were really downloading the software. Mm -hmm. so that your machines were compromised and your government could spy on you and like turn your camera on and do all sorts of disgusting stuff. So it can happen, right? So that's part of the issue with these. I think that's another communications issue. A lot of the companies who build these companies, organizations, working groups of people up until now, because they're funded so poorly, are not able to get their names out there in a way. So I felt like I was constantly an emissary. You can use this VPN because I know these people and I trust them. Like it came down to like, I know the people who work, who built all this stuff. And that's too small a community of people. <laughs> it's not gonna scale anytime soon. I think what we can do is fund the shit out of that, if I can say shit. You can um, say shit. Fund that a lot. Um, and in this case, and I think You've hit on it, Steve. Like, you need to get, I don't, I don't love VC, but you need to get big bucks behind it. And I think your business model is really smart. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do? Reorg the internet. Like, the internet is built in a way that doesn't really have privacy in mind. It was built by a bunch of, like, fun-loving tech dudes, you know, who, like, were, an ac who were academics and, like, engineers and not necessarily the most, like, I don't want to be too harsh, but empathetic people who could think through how this might someday reach the entire world. Who thought, right? Who thought it was going to get that big mm -hmm. and then cause all these security headaches for people later? You're saying we need a new internet. We need to build yeah. internet 2.0 or, or whatever, yeah, IPv, whatever. But like the issue being like, yes, an internet that's thoughtful and from like soup to nuts or like from the bottom to the top of the stack, like it needs to be something that is imbued with values that aren't things like arrogance or, let me not be so harsh, like um, a lack of accountability. You see that in a lot of these big tech companies. It's not my responsibility. It's, it's just the platform. It's just, it, no, like I think we could imbue our internet and our technologies with better values. Okay. Does anyone else have any answers to some of those questions? Um, uh, uh, just a couple of comments. Um, I think that there's a couple of different levels of responsibility here to uh, solve this security problem that, that you spoke about. Um, like, you know, the phishing scams or the, uh, the you know, people putting viruses on my computer. And when I think of it, you know, I think of ORCID, um, an analogy would be like a network of roads. And 
the, the internet's this network of roads, and what we're doing at Orchid is we're making it so that nobody can stop your traffic on this road, and nobody can see you went down that road, right? But, but you know, can somebody go on that road and deliver a virus to you, and can you, you know, go breathe their air and get their virus? Yes, right? So I think that there's, di there's different parts of this, and we're not trying to solve all of the problems of the internet, or all of the privacy and, and security problems. We're focused on the idea that anybody who wants access to the internet should have it in such a way that is open, right? And that's one problem that needs to get solved, but there's gonna be other efforts to solve these other problems of, yeah. for example, viruses and malware and other things. Yeah. We're not, we're not, we're just making the pipes better. Also, just to carry that point one step further, I mean, I think those problems are really orthogonal. There's no reason yeah. why this should be more susceptible to Trojans or no. viruses than any other software. So the software that's most popular is the best target, right? That's the one you want to go mm -hmm. after. In, in particular, the Windows operating system, right? <laughs> so I don't think that building secure software is introducing new vectors of attack any more than just building new software is. Um, and in terms of your last question about what do we do when people don't opt in, there's nothing you can do if the person you want to send an email to doesn't have a method for decrypting it. I mean, there's, that's why I said a really important problem here is how we get I mean, Perio allows you to do that. You can send a ghost email to somebody. And how do you ask them if they'd like to opt in to go get it? Or Yeah, that's true. They do have to go get it. But yeah. they can go get it, I don't know, yes. Perio is one option maybe? <laughs> it's not maybe the most secure option. Oh, so maybe not. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, Dean Ahmed from the Minaret of Freedom Institute. My question is prompted by the comment you just uh, made, uh, and but the question is directed to Steve. Um, I can see why uh, an authoritarian government would be more eager to get an orchid than any other system because it's such a threat to them. Yep. So all they have to do is say, click on this email, and the virus does nothing except to identify that this computer, yeah. this IP, is part of the ORCID network. Mm -hmm. And if you've made it illegal to be part of the ORCID network, then the kind of problems that you identified come right out. Yeah. So we've, we've, uh, we've built ORCID with that specifically in mind, and there's no way that you can look up an IP address on ORCID. So the way it works, and all of the nodes addresses are in a distributed hash table in such a way that they're obfuscated. Huh. So there is no way to for anybody to do a lookup on what IP address the nodes are. But I, if I understood, there there'd be no way for a virus to identify. A, a, excuse me. If, if, I put, if I downloaded a piece of software on my computer, could it tell that my computer had ORCID on it? Yes. The answer is yes. And that's all a government would need, I think, is the point to, yeah. Well, what government has the power to install software on every citizen's computer? Probably the Chinese government. I don't Where they make a lot of computers? I mean, I, it's a supply chain question at that point, right? And that might be a complete edge. Yeah sort of paranoid case, but. I don't know that any government's to that level of. It would be interesting yeah. to try and hide ORCID on your own computer. <laughs> well, and because it's open source software, I do think that there would be People Chinese entrepreneurs it. that are going to build a chess game that's really Girl, ORCID. And how are. you fund it is every month you download a new chess game, right? <laughs> and you pay that's that developer right? $6 and they're buying the tokens, right? You don't have to put it on every computer, just an 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting attack vector, and I, um, I'd be interested to see what our technical hmm. people say about it, because I bet we've covered it already. So it's, almost, it's not enough anymore to just be defensive. You, you also have to be offensive. I but think but that's what we spent, I mean, that's what we spent most of our time doing over the last year is figuring out every attack vector that's going to come from state government. actors and how we're going to circumvent them. Huh. Question. <laughs> Jake. Hi, I'm Jake LaPru, Constitution Project. Well, I am always encouraging people to try to up their personal digital security, and I'm very glad for discussions like this. I do think that there's not enough onus on companies that often, okay. especially in, like you mentioned, IoT, deliver just whole riddle products that are very vulnerable or leave themselves wide open to mass data breaches that yes. affect tons of reasonably responsible people, but just happened to use a certain product or company that was itself not responsible. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, especially given how much Congress seems to have struggled with this, how can we incentivize or push or require companies to engage in some sort of baseline mm -hmm. protections for digital users and what type of protections do you think those should include? I can say my answer and then yeah. you guys can get My answer is liability. Yeah. Um, and, sorry, to, to go down um, the tort path towards product liability. I think that's, it, it's a tricky area, as I'm sure you know. I mean, it, it's not a, an easily answered question, but I think when you present companies, so manufacturers, even if they're in China, you know, it complicates things a bit. Um, but if you have the ability to persecute or to prosecute a company for a faulty product that creates some kind of injury uh, through the tort process, I think that's very big incentive for companies who realize, especially the big companies, that they will be liable for millions and millions of dollars as soon as something goes wrong, right? So you have an elderly person in your smart home, um, and many companies are, are in this space, especially AT&T, looking at how to you know, enable uh, seniors to live longer in their homes, which is a, a great thing. But when something goes wrong with one of those devices or sensors and it actually injures the person for, for whatever reason, yeah. that's when the liability will come into play. And in my opinion, that's, that's a huge incentive. Yeah, I, I mean, I just saw uh, um, the number one selling uh, handgun safe on Amazon.com can be unlocked by anybody. Cool. Anybody. Anybody. Can un you, you buy this safe and anybody can unlock your safe because their security was for SHIT, right? And, and what, was, what, what, I, what I found fascinating was Amazon's still selling them. <laughs> and this is well documented in the hacker press, right? Mm -hmm. But Amazon's still selling them. Mm -hmm. And I agree with what you're saying. It's going to take somebody having a problem, which God forbid that happens, because that's a really bad thing to have a problem with, and Amazon being liable for Amazon huh. selling that Chinese company's. Point, yeah. The US person that gets injured should not have to go to the Chinese company. Agreed. Amazon also has a responsibility for selling that thing. Right, right. you'd sue right. Target if you went to Target and you bought that and something happened. It's interesting, because I think about the number of websites that are out there that have people's nanny cams, like, or, you know, like your webcams for your kids. Like, that you can just go to websites and look at people's kids sleeping, and that's terrifying. But there hasn't been any kind of legal action around that. And I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> building another Nest, like building another Alexa. Like, do we not connect these two dots? This is your family that's being watched by some 
people you don't know. It's enough for me. I really think just from, from my experience with, with um, people dealing, struggling with this, it has to do in some ways with the disconnect between knowing this is going on and not feeling empowered to do anything about it, really. I mean, we all uh, want to be a part of the digital ecosystem in a sense. We like the convenience and the services. But the trade-offs are very opaque, as we as we talked about, and I don't think that people have a sense of what they're signing up for. You know, nanny cam, maybe you do, but uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do at CDT is, is figure out how to make those disclosures more available to the public so that they can evaluate things like toys, yeah. right? Connected toys, these creepy Barbie things, yes. you know, to make sure that people have an understanding of, of that this is a part of what you need to be weighing as a consumer. Um, Yes, <laughs> I wasn't sure who, who, what order we're in. So I'm definitely last because it's jumped in my head. I actually have a question for you, Michelle, which is, could you talk more about that? Like, I mean, how do you counter? Because I personally, I, I get the same sense you do that it's not that people don't want to be more secure, protective of their own privacy. It's that they feel that they are out of control and can't. So, what are some of the other things that can be done to help users take back control? I know that's kind of the subject of this panel, but I mean, you at CDT and your role, what, what other kinds of things you've been contemplating? Well, it's tricky because some of the tools that we've advocated for in the past, like VPNs, you know, have become complicated for, for and you actually hear a lot of people, even at the FTC, advocating for these kinds of things. I think what, what we try to tell people is to be a savvy consumer and, and to the extent that you can, right? And to not use products and services that aren't encrypted, that don't have your privacy in mind. And, and actually, when you, you look at privacy policies or, or sharing policies, you can get a sense of that, right? It's not, you don't have to be a lawyer to, and of course you don't want to wade through all of these things. But, you know, for example, the fact that Google's Chrome is, is you know, so incredibly fantastic right now, and the fact that they're, they're so secure is something that we tell people, and that gives you a sense. Now, on the other hand, um, if you are a Google user, they have a lot of information about you already, right? Maybe browsing history isn't as important anymore um, for various reasons, because they can get information back from other, many of their other companies, right? And so I would say that there's, the, the tricky part is it's almost a cat and mouse game between the consumer and the companies. And so leveling that playing field is, was one of our focus. So. I, I like to give people information and tools, but mostly our advocacy is towards policy because I think that has to be the leveling effect. And in fact, I was talking about this at the FTC the other day, saying the, the job of the government is not necessarily to impede innovation or break the internet, whatever, whatever you hear. It's to create a level playing field so that we can evaluate these things on a, on a better level. Yeah. But I also do say use things like Signal. <laughs> um, Signal's a great, a great tool and, and to, you know, kind of be open-minded to the fact that your data is very valuable in context that you may not be aware of or wouldn't be obvious to you. Um, so, you know, I talk a lot about health data and, and the sort of misperceptions that people have about its security and privacy. They think that HIPAA covers a lot of information that doesn't. Um, so making sure that if privacy is something that matters to you, you're going to have to do some work. <laughs> you're going to have to educate yourself and do some work in, in the ecosystem we're in now. Yeah. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to the, to the back part of the room after this. In that context, what can someone do when personal information that they have never posted, never published, is all over the internet. Oh, yeah. You mean like the Equifax brief? A. <laughs> I'm not talking just Google, whitepages.com. All those I, I, I call, data brokers. I, I was talking to an attorney yeah. 
from the Federal Trade Commission trying to find out how do I get this personal information that is harming me, mm. such as my age, I'm looking for a job, yep. that I have never posted either in my Social Security number, I've never posted that personal information right. anywhere in an email or online, and yet whitepages.com, yeah. and I was talking to this attorney from the Federal Trade Commission, and she said, number one, they can't do anything because Congress has not given them the authority, but if Congress did give them the authority, then they would be able yeah. to remove personal information at the request of the person who had never authorized it. That's Can what the attorney told me. But as she was talking to me, she went to whitepages.com, and searched, searched herself, her name, and she was pretty stunned. She doesn't use her married name, and yet there was the name of her husband, of her kids, her age, yeah. prior addresses from the past yeah. decades. Yeah. Um, there aren't any protections in, in that respect. So That's fair. That's fair. What can no. we do? And one of the things I was thinking about, which would be, Pretty drastic, but I'm personally not that interested in having my information. I don't have a Facebook. I went to Facebook. I applied for a job. I got an immediate call back um, complimenting me on my resume, expressing interest, and all of a sudden they said, well, for us to proceed, you must have a Facebook account. Is that <laughs> even legal? And I went to Facebook. And it, had, it was very clear that there was absolutely no privacy, that anything I would enter became theirs. Yeah. Don't and tell so them I, yeah, I, I didn't touch it. Yeah. Um, so one question I have is, what is the feasibility of a do not post, do not publish list for the internet? Wouldn't that be great? Those data broker people search sites, I mean, those are terrifying. There are dozens of them, probably 100. I do a training on personal security, and a big chunk of it is looking your name up. I usually do it with women who are running for local office um, because they need to protect themselves. You know? um, but it, I was trained um, on this when I was training the DEA and <laughs> how to find their targets. Um, and then I've used a lot of that to help the women who were targeted by Gamergate, like Zoe, Quinn, and Anita Sarkeesian, right? So, and women over and over again. I'm constantly counseling them on this list. And I, on our website, we have the training, and we have an aggregated list of hundreds of these sites that exist that you have to go into and opt out of each one if they allow you to. And they don't always. Right. And to build a scraper that would go in and, like, pull your data down or automate the opt out or to check because it gets repopulated because it's public data, right? Like if you own your home, forget about it. Mm -hmm. If you have read where I went to college, for some reason, like those records are available. And so it's constant gardening to keep your information offline if you're interested in making sure that nobody shows up at your doorstep because you tweeted something that they don't like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's constant gardening. It's a constant pain in the butt. And they're, based on the terms of services that exist at this point, there is no way to automate anything that would help to take your information down, and there is no do, no, do not call registry. Can we? I don't know enough about policy. Absolutely. Technologically. Technologically. Yeah. It's a legal question. Europe's done it, right? Yes. To some extent, right? Right, and maybe not enforced it that well, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, so it really is kind of a, a matter of policy and political will. Um, certainly in the United States, it's lacking. To, to do a campaign like that or to, to start something like that? 
Well, um, I would say that there are a lot of tools online that help you seed campaigns, you know, Kickstarter, others that would, you know, really want a forum where you can get the most attention possible. And I think that you would have people who would, would that would resonate with. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of... Oh, I don't think that's true. I used to feel that way, but I think that tide is turning. I, think I would the reach out. Oh, sorry. You go I ahead. would reach out to Zoe Quinn. I would reach out to her through Crash Override and tell her Zoe Quinn. She was famous because she was the target of Gamergate, and she is. This is a huge issue for her, and she helps people. Yep. What were you going to say? Um, okay. No, no. I think I want to save my comments so that people can. Can someone? Could someone in the back has a question? Feel bad. They've been patient, yeah. patiently waiting for us. Hi, uh, my name is Susan Gonzalez, and uh, my background is a former Army intelligence officer, and now I'm in the private sector as a business owner in the data analytics space. Um, you know, as an anecdote back, this question is really going to be directed mostly towards Steve, but it's open to all of the panelists. When I was uh, serving as an intelligence officer overseas in Afghanistan in 2006, now this is more than a decade ago, it was incredibly hard working for the Joint Special Operations Command. Oh, wow. We had a hell of a time trying to um, control what kinds of, with the supply chain to make sure that the Cat5 cables that we were communicating on, forget the encryption, so my, all the issues come before encryption even happens. Yeah. That if the, the Cat5 cables were Chinese, the Chinese were intercepting all of our information. So this is a hardware problem before we even get to the software encryption. Hmm. So hmm. I understand privacy and this entire day has been full of panelists that have all covered a lot of interesting topics. Um, my, I think there's one person who came today that is decidedly a little bit different in that your services, your, your primary reason for creating the business that you have is for Chinese free speech, liberty, and everywhere across the world besides just the United States, which I think is admirable. But I wonder that um, this isn't just for profit since we are talking about liberty of all people. Mm -hmm and freedom of speech and expression and freedom from oppression, how have you addressed things like that? Because China, this is more than a decade ago, had the capability to intercept all of our very encrypted communications. How are you doing that? I heard you say other things about, well, we're only solving one part of a problem. I see this as part and parcel to the service that you're providing in your business. Um, I'm curious how you're addressing that sort of security. Thank you for the question. And we only have about five minutes, unfortunately. I'll so. be brief. But yes, thanks for the question, Susan. Um, for, 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 for ORCID, ORCID runs on your phone or your, uh, or your computer. And ORCID is doing the encryption at your device. So in your example, if your Cat5 cable is compromised, the data going through there is already encrypted. Mm -hmm. so, so, but back to the earlier question, if your device is compromised, that we don't solve for, but we do solve for the problem of the cable being compromised. Mm -hmm. Yep. Forget it. Yeah.
So we are, we are talking the sophistication level of the Chinese. We're talking about the Russians. You are just, you're yep. specifically dealing with the Chinese here in this case. Mm -hmm. So they are ultimately sophisticated. Assume that the Chinese government will compromise all these devices. How did you address that? Yeah, and again, we don't, we're not solving all of the world's problems around encryption and privacy and, and surveillance. We are solving the problem of from your device to the internet web server you're going to, that you can be sure that that is surveillance-free, censorship-free. But one of the things that I'm encouraged about is I see many peers around in my space that are building other open source projects that do deal with some of these concerns. Mm -hmm. So there's companies that are building uh, uh, new ways to connect to Internet of Things devices and new ways to tell what those devices are doing and new ways to check on what's going on on that communication pipe. Mm -hmm. So I see other things getting built out, other open source, source tools getting built to solve some of these other problems. Do you educate users around that? That if their device is compromised, this ORCID isn't going to really work? So we believe that we have a big responsibility there. Just like I previously said, I think Facebook has a responsibility there to say what's going on with their users. We're going to have a responsibility to educate our users, and we don't have an answer to fully answer that, pro that problem yet. Cool. Because there's a lot of ignorance, right? It's too, it's too technical. Yeah, interesting. I think uh, maybe we have time for one more quick question from the audience. Yes. Oh. More about node security. Um, if I'm one of the people who's got, uh, I mean, my question is a little ignorant, but let's, I've, I've got the software on my computer, uh, package being routed through me. I don't know what they are. Um, my concern is that a bad guy sends something to another guy. On the other end is the government. They receive it. They see it came from me. They come kicking my door. I had nothing to do with it, but now I'm in trouble. I know you're saying this is being kind of spoofed so that the person on the receiving end doesn't see who the exit node was. That's not my concern. My concern is that the way you're doing it, uh, it's either the spoofing is kind of open source and so the government can figure it out anyway, uh, or uh, you've got a bunch of hashes attached to the IP addresses which you're storing locally somewhere, and that's a single node that can be attacked. Yeah. Am I, am I wrong? Yes. Okay, um, so so, so um, uh, the thing that we do to protect nodes from, um, so if, I, if I'm running an exit node in the US, I, I'm happy to have people go to Tumblr or Twitter, but I don't want them to go to alqaeda.com or kidporn.com or buyheroinhere.com. How it works is we have this notion of whitelist. These are open source, community-generated whitelists. Um, most everybody that's running an ORCID exit will subscribe to the default whitelist, which lets you go to everywhere on the normal internet, but not the dark web or other questionable websites. So we think that's how we're going to solve that problem, to make it safe for exits uh, for nodes to be ORCID relays. All right, thank you for the question. Um, just one quick announcement. The reception will be held in the Winter Garden um, located here on the first floor. So there's a reception after this. And restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level. Um, and thank you very much for your attention today. And please join me in giving a hand to our panelists. Some very quickly, I want to reassure everyone I, I don't have any intention of, of giving you know, 20 minutes of, of, uh, of closing <laughs> remarks. Uh, I do want to let everyone get, get to uh, uh, socializing and, and, and beer. Um, I just want to very briefly just draw out some of the themes 
that have emerged over the course of the conference. I think it's apt that we're here in the Hayek Auditorium because one of Hayek's uh, key insights was the way complexity, and I didn't necessarily phrase it in exactly this way, but the way that complexity is an aid to unaccountable power. Um, the thing libertarians often like about this is that he argued that the more complex government becomes, the more tasks government tries to take on, the more infeasible it becomes for a democratic public to be informed enough about every aspect of it um, to effectively check uh, and, and express through uh, democratic action um, you know, approval or disapproval of those particular actions. And also the more has to be outsourced from directly accountable bodies that are uh, promulgating uh, sort of right, generally accessible rules of law to agencies uh, generating these sort of impenetrable nests of regulation. Uh, and I think that's an insight that's very heavily applicable to the privacy space, that to the extent uh, we as members of the public are losing power by ceding uh, control of information to different authorities, a lot of that is a function of the incredible complexity uh, of, the, of the high sort of barrier to entry of just understanding uh, the threats we faced, let alone taking action against them. If we think about the discussion of Carpenter, well, what's the issue there? In large part, it's that vastly greater quantities of data about us are being stored uh, according to practices, not just for storing and retaining, but for sharing our information that are opaque to the end user. And not just opaque as a matter of policy, that, that companies don't publish every kind of data they're keeping or what they're doing with it, um, but opaque as a matter of volume as scholars like Chris Hufnagel and, and Helen Nissenbaum have pointed out, even if, in principle, everything about how companies store your data and how they share it were public and knowable, it would still be too complex for any normal human being to actually you know, go through it all, to go through the policy of every website they use, to go through those uh, tangles of data flows and understand how worried they should be, uh, what the threat should be, while the benefits are often fairly obvious. Face recognition is now uh, a problem, one, because of its opacity in the sense that um, it's often not obvious to the end user what's going on. It's not obvious when your face is being recorded and recognized. Uh, but also, we're increasingly dealing with uh, right, thousands of local departments with their own policies, no, uh, no common rules to it, no real way for an ordinary person to know whether you've just entered a jurisdiction that has face recognition policies uh, that you ought to be more concerned about. Um, we also uh, realize the way, again, that in the same way that, that right, sort of complexity empowers uh, discretionary rulemaking by agencies, um, there was a concern raised by Professor Hansford at lunch and a number of our speakers that, you know, in a world where, uh, as the uh, uh, civil libertarian uh, Harvey Silverglate uh, has argued, incredibly complex rules mean many of us commit three felonies a day without knowing it because so many things or a violation of some statute or another, the more information about us is centralized in ways that we don't understand, the more people with access to that information have discretion. You can't, right, you can't, if everyone is committing a crime, you can't punish everyone who is in principle guilty of something. Uh, it now falls to them to decide which of those many people uh, should be pursued. And they have essentially the ability to find something on almost all of us. Um, it's therefore perhaps a little bit self-congratulatory to say that we're doing our part by being here, but I do think that in a sense, insofar as the incredible overhead of trying to keep track of all of these different complex intelligence programs, um, well, you know, beyond the fact that so much about them is secret, uh, right, makes it difficult 
uh, for uh, ordinary citizens and even for lawmakers to understand how they should prioritize these privacy threats. And so to the extent that you've taken time uh, to come here, uh, and those of you who were deterred by the cold, I know there were quite a few who were watching at home, uh, I, I do feel like you are, uh, you are doing your part to solve the problem. So I want to thank all of you. And I also want to specifically thank Kiana Graham, our, uh, our conference manager. Um, you know, I get to stand up here and, and uh, you know, look clever because I've brought uh, a lot of people cleverer than I to speak to you. Um, but the, the hard work of actually making the logistics happen, getting, getting people on planes, getting people into hotel rooms, making sure everything works, uh, that, is, that is really all Kiana, and she deserves uh, certainly an enormous amount of the credit for this conference. So thank you and thank her uh, with me and our speakers one last time. Thank you.